today we're going to be talking about John chapter 4, the dialogue with the woman at the well in Samaria. And uh, we're dedicating this entire Bible study to just that one dialogue because there's so much in it and it's uh, very interesting and it connects with some other things so nicely. So you see in the introduction there, we're trying to lay a little groundwork here once again for the calendar. It's not that we're obsessed with calendar, but this is kind of important to realize how early this is in Jesus' ministry. So, notice what it says. Jesus must have visited this well in Samaria very early in his ministry since John 2, 13 and 23 mentioned the Passover in March, April. Uh, it's half of March, half of April. It can fall anywhere in there. So that's why we say March, April. And since this would have been the first Passover of Jesus' earthly career, we might imagine that Jesus' public coming out included his baptism, 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, his first discipling efforts, all of that must have occurred in February and early March. Uh, so when we come to the Passover in John 2, there are some things that have already happened. Um, his interview with Nicodemus must have taken place while he was still in Jerusalem for that Passover. And maybe that would be in April or May. Uh, the Holy Land wheat would typically be white and ready for harvest in late May. And that's mentioned in chapter 4 here. After visiting Jerusalem for the Passover in March-April, hanging out there for a little while, Jesus' fastest route home north to Galilee would have been through Samaria, uh, even though typically the Jewish people disliked Samaritans enough that they did not cut through Samaria, even though that was the fast way. Uh, Samaria is on the same side of the Jordan River as Jerusalem, as you know. Uh, so most of the Jewish people would go north a little bit, cross the Jordan, and go above Samaria and cut back over and then continue on up to Galilee because they hated the Samaritans so much they wouldn't cut through it. They'd rather cross the river twice. And so, and the river's not that big, so it's not that hard. But the fastest way is to cut right through Samaria. Uh, so, in that context, moving from Jerusalem after the Passover, the dialogue with Nicodemus, Moving on up to Galilee, in that context, he meets the woman at the well. It's important to notice, therefore, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit offered on this occasion would not actually become a reality for any of the followers of Jesus until the day of Pentecost, still three years removed from this dialogue in chapter 4. And that's similar to what we said in chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, but nobody would be born again until Acts chapter 2, three years in the future. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but for now, just notice that this is very early in Jesus' ministry, and we're going to see that that affects uh, some of how we understand what he's going to say to this woman at the well. You see the heading there says the Jewish resentment of all Samaritans and also their disrespect for all women. Uh, this is something we sometimes struggle with, so let's just lay a little groundwork there. John chapter 4, verse 3. He left Judea, departed again to Galilee. Again, he needed to go through Samaria. You don't need to go. You could cross the Jordan, go above Samaria, cut across again, and go up from there to Galilee. But it's the best way, the fastest way, maybe in a spiritual sense. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me to drink. 
before his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so why do Jewish people have no dealings with Samaritans? Here is some explanation. By the first century A.D., Jewish society had come to disrespect all women, not just Samaritan women. Uh, Remember, uh, why are you asking of me a woman of Samaria? So she has two strikes against her. She's a woman and she's from Samaria. So here's what the Hebrew people prayed in those days. Uh, Praise be to God. Obviously, this is a Hebrew male prayer. Praise be to God that he has not created me a Gentile, a woman, or a hawk. (laughs) Wow. So nice guys, huh? That was a Hebrew prayer. In the Mishnah from about 150 AD, even the most virtuous of women is a witch. Well, that's why it was rather astonishing that Jesus would stop and talk to a woman. Astonishing not to us, not to Jesus, but to the eyes of Jewish society. Why would he stop and give so much attention to a woman, and particularly a woman of Samaria? Now let's talk about the Samaritan part of that formula. From the death of Solomon to the fall of Israel in 722 BC, the city and the region, Samaria is both a city and a region, so the city and region of Samaria was the capital of the ten northern tribes of Israel. When Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians deported many Israelites from Samaria and transplanted many Babylonian and Arab foreigners to Samaria in place of the Gentiles. So we know this from the Bible and we know it from history. I've given you the Bible verses there just because. Second uh, Kings 17.6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, he took Samaria. He carried away Israel into Assyria and placed them in Hela and in Habar by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes when they conquered the kingdom of Israel. So they took the Jewish people out of Samaria and what did they put in their place? Chapter 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sephar, Vaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria. Many of those are Arab people. So you evacuate the Jewish people and carry them captive. And in their place, you put Arabs. Well, as you can see, uh, historically, we know that that's the case. It's not just from Scripture. I have given you there in uh, italics a section that was found in the annals of Sargon II which are uh, cuneiform tablets discovered in northern Iraq in 19 I'm sorry 1842 and here is king Sargon uh, boasting he says at the beginning of my royal rule i the text is muddled uh, the town of samarians i besieged conquered more missing text for the god who let me achieve this my triumph I led away as prisoners 27,290 inhabitants of it and equipped from among them 50 chariots for my royal corps. The town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein people from countries which I had conquered. I placed an officer of mine as governor over there and imposed upon them the tribute as is customary for Assyrian citizens. So in other words, from both the Bible and history, we read that the Jewish people were deported from Samaria 
Arabs and Babylonians were transplanted, and that's how it was. So your next paragraph, naturally, many of the Israelites who remained in the ten northern tribes intermarried with the pagan Arabs and Babylonians who were transplanted, making their children half-breeds and paganizing much of their way of life. Faithful Jewish people would obviously resent this. Uh, Here are their neighbors, and the neighbors are not even Jewish. Uh, They are Arabs, in some cases half-breeds, and this causes a lot of resentment. Uh, Besides which, in the paganizing of their customs, you're bringing in Arab religion, um, this was considered spiritual adultery. So when you see all of that history, you start to realize why there's bad blood. But there's more. After the captivity, when the Samaritans offered to help Ezra rebuild the temple, they were refused. Ezra said, no, this is not your temple. This is our temple. And so then the Samaritans were incensed and they tried to halt the work of the Jewish people altogether. And we have that story in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. So just you hear the context there. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, because they came back from captivity and they want to rebuild the temple, right? Uh, So when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said to them, let us build. So this is Samaritans saying, let us build. For we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. So they're here. Oh, yeah, the king of Assyria transplanted these people into Samaria. And, and they said, well, we're, we're like Jewish people now, too. So we want to help you build the temple. And I've given you a little timeline there with some of the kings. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house to our God. We ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. And so then in verse 4, then the people of the land, Samaritans, weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. So once they were refused uh, a share in the building, then they became upset and harassed the people. Well, Nehemiah comes a short time later building the walls and you see the paragraph there. When Nehemiah and the exiles return to the Holy Land right after the opening of the book of Ezra, you have the events of Nehemiah. Uh, Their arch villain is Sanballat and Sanballat led the Samaritan army in harassing the Jews in their efforts. So more of that, Nehemiah 4.1, came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was angry, took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brothers and the army of Samaria. There it is, Samaria. And said, what are these feeble Jews doing? So problems with Ezra, problems with Nehemiah. And then one more time, finally in 128 BC, the Jewish Maccabean high priest, John Hyrcanus, went to Samaria, Mount Gerizim, and destroyed the temple that the Samaritans built there to rival the Jerusalem temple, and this act furthered the hatred of all parties involved. So you see, there's a long history of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, and uh, you might understand something of why that would be the case. Does that raise any questions or observations? So when the woman says, why are you, a Jewish man, 
talking to me, a woman of Samaria. She meant, why are you talking to a woman? Why are you paying attention to me? And number two, why are you paying attention to a Samaritan? And she had reasons to ask both of those questions. Then Jesus talks about living water. And this is a great idea in Scripture. It's very exciting. So uh, John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Well, living water. So what's that all about? In the Gospel of John, as you can see in the explanation there, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is not an accident that in the Synoptic Gospels you have John the Baptist saying, when Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Well, John was baptizing in water, and he says Jesus is going to baptize you, but not with water only, but with the Holy Spirit. And so water and the Holy Spirit kind of uh, get associated in the writings of the Gospel of John and the other writings of John. And then uh, you can see how this continues. Here in chapter 4, Jesus offers the Samaritan woman living water. Living, that's flowing water. Um, living water springing up. And it is, in Greek, you know, like jumping up. Uh, water that jumps up. Um, it's, an, it's an artesian well. Uh, water can just bubble right up out of the ground and uh, form a little stream that happens and that's what Jesus is saying. There's going to be water that bubbles up here, jumps up from the ground. And uh, that's what the Holy Spirit is like. The water that comes from an artesian well just jumps right up and it doesn't run dry. And you you know, expect, in that case, it gives life-giving sustenance unendingly. It just keeps coming up. And so in that sense, it's living water. It's, it's moving. It's flowing. It's not still water. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we have almost the identical verbiage. And it says Jesus was speaking in that case about the Holy Spirit as rivers of living water, flowing water again, that dwell in a person's belly. You know, in his belly shall come up rivers of living water and it quenches the thirst of the soul. We'll talk about that when we get a little further into the Gospel of John. But all of that to say that the Holy Spirit's ministry here is um, life-giving. It quenches thirst for life. It, uh, without water, you know, you can't live very long. So water is mission critical for life. That's the big thing. You've got to have water. You can go a long, long time. Jim Swanson told me one time about 60 days without food. But to go without water for a few days, you're in big, big trouble in a hurry. So it's water that you need. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like living water. It flows. It comes up from the belly and it quenches your thirst. You can just live on and on and on with this water. Everlasting life. Everlasting life coming from the Holy Spirit. Well, there are a lot of implications to that. Not only for everlasting life. Obviously, that's the first and most important 
application. But to have the Holy Spirit in your belly, as Jesus says it in chapter 7, that is life-changing. To have within you the Holy Spirit's life and work, that's just extraordinary. Uh, As we know from many, many other texts in the New Testament, that that is life-changing in every way. That affects everything. So it's very exciting that you have the Holy Spirit uh, constantly bubbling forth his work, uh, bringing you everlasting life, quenching your thirst for some sort of relief from the dread of eternity without Christ, uh, quenching that thirst, working in your life. That's, that's an amazing and beautiful thing. Remember in the beginning when we were talking about the date of this dialogue with the Samaritan woman. Now, in John chapter 7, since the language is so similar, we have help because in that text it says, Jesus spoke these things about the Holy Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's talking about them before uh, it was possible for these truths to be applied um, directly. But he can talk about them now, and in three years uh, they will be applied. So that's where we are with the living water. Uh, The Holy Spirit's influence in your body, uh, quenching your thoughts, thirst for everlasting life and and granting that life and never running dry. Does that raise any questions or observations? Amy? Yes. At least his first, you know, recorded big outreach. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Um, And I'm sure uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute at the bottom of that page. You see, we're talking about reaching the reachable. It's kind of astonishing that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Went unto the Samaritan half-breeds or worse, and they did receive him. Like, hmm, go figure. But that's the way it was. And I'm sure John put that in his gospel for that very reason. So, good. Carol. Yeah, uh, Carol is asking, did that episode in the early chapters of Ezra, uh, did that represent truth? Was, was it a good idea to forbid those others from helping And um, evidently, it was the right idea. Uh, We don't don't know all the details, but they were probably still pretty corrupted by paganism. And uh, everything in Scripture leads us to believe that this faithful Jewish remnant was really doing just what God wanted them to do. Yeah, yeah, John is reminding us that later in the same dialogue, uh, Jesus does correct the Samaritan woman's uh, false ideas about religion. You know, it's still not very good in Samaria. You can imagine after the Jewish people were in captivity and returned back, uh, surely those Samaritan people were very, very corrupt. Um, So, good. All right, so then we get this dialogue about real worship and real conversion, which is great. So, chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, you say, and you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, you worship what you know not. We know what we worship, 
for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, so some really interesting aspects to this dialogue. First, this woman at the well had burned through five husbands and was now shacking up, evidently having an affair, something with a a sixth person who was not even her husband. Every once in a while somebody says, well, you know, we've been together I guess we're married. No, that's not true. Um, It takes more than being together to make marriage. This woman was together, but Jesus said, that's not your husband. So never think that sex is marriage. Sex is not marriage. Uh, Marriage can have a lot of different looks, but you're basically committing before God and the people who know you that you're going to be together making a family for the rest of your lives. And that can take on a whole lot of different forms, uh, recipes. But until everybody knows around you and the Lord himself has uh, been your witness in this thing, that you are together forever, a family, everybody got it? Yeah, we got it. Then you're married. So that's really important when, when people say, well, I think, you know, once you've been together, that's the same as marriage. That's nonsense. And that's why Jesus said the man you have now isn't even your husband. It's not marriage. Billy. The common law marriage, uh, which I think is like seven years, if you've been together for seven years, uh, the state recognizes you as a married couple uh, for inheritances and all of those things. You know, it's, it's okay. I mean, there are people in our own congregation who have done that. But you know, you're, you're sneaking in, you're sliding in until you reach that seven years, whatever it is, uh, you're just living in adultery, right? Uh, or at least there was no obvious commitment. So now, you know, well, we've been married, well, we've been together for 20 years and after seven years it was common law marriage. So think of us as married and it's like, okay, well, we will. But why didn't you just go in front of God and everybody and say, Hey, we are committed for life. We're married for life. Never think that we're going to be separate. We will never be separate. Why not just say that? So the marriage ceremonies are different all around the world, even amongst you know Christians. Uh, we're reading in the Old Testament, and Isaac takes Rebecca into his tent, and there, they're married. We're like, what about the dress and the cake? Well, you don't have to have that. But it's like everybody knows. Isaac and Rebecca are married. Case closed. Everybody knows, right? Who doesn't know? Everybody knows. And that's what, what is marriage. You have, you've committed yourselves to being a family till death parts us. That's marriage. Uh, however you cut it. Uh, Josiah. Yeah, Josiah is saying, what about the uh, role of the government in marriage? You get a marriage license and you're recognized. Um, th- that's fine. You know, what would ever happen if we lived in such a decadent society that the government got out of the marriage business, which would be fine with us anyway. But I mean, what if they got out of the marriage business 
When I say be fine with us, it'd probably actually be preferable. But that's fine. However that works out, I don't care. But if they got out of the marriage business, quit granting licenses, then it would still fall on us as Christian people to declare our commitments, our loyalty to, to be a family that will never separate. You know, God has joined us together and no one will ever part us. And we would continue doing what we're doing, whether there was a government sanction of that or not. Uh, and in many parts of the world, at many different times, that has been necessary. Uh, and that's, that's perfectly appropriate. But, um, you know, of course, Romans 13, we're going to follow the government uh, in this thing. They say you have to get a license. You get a license and you do whatever they tell you to do. Uh, but, but the government is not the point. And by the way, if you want to have a uh, marriage with the circuit court judge, you know, that's fine too, whatever. But the important thing is somehow in your culture, you are saying, hey, everyone, we're married. This is binding. Hold our feet to the fire. We'll never part. And, and that's marriage. Angie. Yeah, Angie's talking about the, the whole unwillingness to commit. So if you're in a common law marriage, then you're basically living in sin for seven years, let's say. And then common law marriage law kicks in. And you say, okay, well, you have to think of us as married now. Why, why would they have done it that way? And the answer, of course, is a lack of commitment. And so sometimes there are financial benefits to not getting married, unfortunately. Tax benefits, um, insurances. So unfortunately, sometimes it is to your financial advantage not to marry. And so people have done it for those reasons. But surely the biggest reason with all these live-in arrangements is you, have, you leave yourself a big exit. And that is very poor. Uh, to leave yourself a big exit is to leave somebody brokenhearted uh, or, or in your own case to have committed adultery for years and then exited. And that's a really big problem. I was counseling a couple one time and... Uh, they had been immoral together on several occasions, and then the man decided he wants out. Well, of course, then the girl, the young lady in this case, I mean, it could have been either way, but the young lady in this case is absolutely hysterical because, you know, she was thinking life together, and now he's just going to bail. He's going to leave the area. And... um She's beside herself with grief. And so he comes to me and says, what should I do? I don't think I want to marry her. And of course, she's brokenhearted. What am I supposed to do? And I said, well, you strung her along for all of this time. I think, you know, they had dated for years. You strung her along all of this time. And now you're just going to say thanks for nothing and leave? Uh, and you say, well, you know, she's really hysterical. Like, yeah, you can't break somebody's heart like that. Uh, you thought she was interesting enough to be with her all these two or three years that you're dating. Now she's hysterical. You broke her, you fix her. And so he did. But that's just so... Immoral, you know, yeah, you're right, I left somebody in shatters. Well, que sera, sera. Like, no, not que sera, sera. You strung her along. Don't you break her heart. 
And so that doesn't mean that every time there's been impropriety, there should be marriage. Uh, We sometimes say the impropriety, that's one mistake. A poor marriage, that's another mistake. And you don't want to keep making layer upon layer of mistakes in your life. But there is something about living together, stringing somebody along, and then bailing that's very, very cruel and immoral. So that's, that's a very ugly thing to do. And common law marriage would theoretically let you bail out of the relationship with no strings attached. And that's just ugly. No, besides the immorality of the sexual relationship, you have the immorality of just being devilishly cruel to someone for that period of time in, in their lives. Uh, Bridget. I'm not a lawyer, but I would assume that Romans 13 would say the king says no. You can't do that, and you have to obey the king. So that's what I think. Sharla. Yeah, what happens if the king is confused? And so you're trying to obey the king, and even he doesn't quite know what he wants to call family and non-family. You know, it's a group of people living together harmoniously, more or less. Let's call that a family. Well, it sounds like you're kind of confused, King. You know, why would you have any rules about what we do at all? Um, but even though the king is confused, he still lands hard on certain things. So, uh, Emmanuel. Hence the shotgun wedding. Uh, yeah, you have to marry or you have to pay a fine. That's true. It wasn't just a little mistake. Yeah, Shannon. Yeah, so we're not even sure this is a discussion. We're not even sure there's such a thing as common law marriage in Virginia anymore. Everything is morphing so quickly. Um, There must be people all over the state of Virginia who have lived together for years without ever having any kind of contractual marriage. And so what the state will do with inheritances and retirement benefits and all of that, it's probably morphing even as we speak. It's just probably a fiasco. So not that the government would ever be like that, right? So the second bullet there says, um, this woman at the well realized that Jesus could not have read her heart so thoroughly without being a true prophet. Uh, He says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Uh Very tricky. Yes, that's true. You have an affair going on and you've had five husbands. So she knows you must be a true prophet. The third bullet, this woman's question about correct worship was probably very sincere. If um, if I were able to look in your eye and tell you your most embarrassing moment, you might think, uh-oh, how do you know that? <laughs> there might be a God in heaven who reveals the secrets of men. Well, that's what just happened to this woman. And um, so when she talks about, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you say... We should worship in Jerusalem. That's probably a sincere question at that point. She's feeling um, awed, astonished by what's just happened. And so we shouldn't necessarily think that that's just a silly, controversial question to dodge uh, her past. She's probably sincere in this. And the next bullet point, Jesus taught us that worship was not a matter of externals, but spiritual reality in verses 22 and 23. He says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, in spirit, meaning it can't just be aesthetics. You know, this is not worship, this stuff all around us. This is not worship. Even the songs that we sing, you can have lost people singing amazing songs, um, and that's not worship. Oh, we always think about what happens if our 
you know, favorite celebrities get together and do Christmas carols. Well, that can be very pretty music. That doesn't necessarily mean it's worship. I'm not saying that it's not, I don't know their hearts. But worship is not a matter of aesthetics. You know, what do you see? What do you feel? How does this look? How does this sound? Worship is a matter of spirit on the inside, the invisible part of a man. And so they that worship the Lord must worship him in spirit. That's the invisible and in truth uh, as opposed to deception or farce. And so you see the hollow bullet there? Spirit, not appearances and truth, not mistaken notions, are the two essentials of proper worship. So truth not only in the sense of sincerity, but truth in the sense of you know, doctrinal correctness. So from time to time, you'll hear, even from very nice people, these horrific doctrines coming out of their mouths while they are supposedly worshiping um, true worship has to be correct worship. And for a person, you know, the poor United Pentecostals, for example, don't believe in the Trinity, and so they'll stand up week after week and bark out this nonsense about uh, Jesus, when he speaks to the Father, is talking to himself. and It's like, oh, brother, you know, that's just terrible. So we want to worship with correct doctrine. It's not okay to blunder with some unusual doctrines. Um, and uh, unusual doctrines are everywhere, and some are more important than others. But the Lord, uh, he says the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worship that he's looking for. It's really interesting that he's looking for that. Uh, He wishes for it. And so here we have the idea of spirit and truth as opposed to falsehood. And you see in the square bullet indented way over in the middle of the page, Jesus also taught that Jewish people were God's conduit for salvation. He says salvation is of the Jews, you know. So to a Samaritan woman, uh, it's not okay that you blunder along and worship on Mount Gerizim because you prefer it. Uh, the aesthetics are not the main point, but we know what we worship. Jesus says we know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. So I'm sorry, lady, but you're making a lot of mistakes here. I'm just saying. So he taught that the Jewish people were God's conduit of salvation. And so it is. Salvation is of the Jews. That's why anti-Semitism is so devilish. Uh, Why, out of all the ethnic groups in the world, do you pick on the Jewish people? Because salvation is of the Jews. So when you have major mainline American denominations saying, we're going to uh, boycott Israel, the nation of Israel, and we're going to make it as hard as possible for any Jewish people to have a safe homeland. I mean, why are you guys doing this? I mean, you are heavy hitters in the Christian community. You know, some of these are Bible-believing Christians saying, we're just going to make it miserable 
for the Jewish people to have a homeland in the Middle East. We're going to make them so miserable that they give up or they get conquered. And why? Why are you doing that? And the answer is anti-Semitism has deep roots in the work of the devil. Salvation is of the Jews. So guess which ethnic group the devil hates. And he inspires that hate wherever he can. Josiah. Uh, Josiah says, does that have some relationship with um, replacement theology? Replacement theology, remember, being that God has nothing special for the Jewish people in the future. He has something special for us. We replace the Jewish people. They get nothing. And um, that's replacement theology. At least they get nothing as an ethnic group. If they convert to Christianity and worship in our churches, then they get everything that we get. But as an ethnic group, there is no special future for the ethnic group of Israel. And you think, that's why these mainline denominations say there's nothing special for Israel in the future. They, there's no call for Zionism. They don't have to go back to the land. There is no land. It's all been uh, given away because they're so wretched. And so that all goes together. Follow up. Yeah. And, and nobody knows their motivations. But can you imagine how awful this would be if your doctrine had been, say, in 1900, your doctrine had been that there is nothing special for the Jewish people in the end times. There can be nothing special. Everything special is for the church. There can be nothing special for Israel in the end times. And then you see in 1948. Oh, and then everybody on our side was saying, you know, all these Old Testament scriptures are saying that. These Jewish people are supposed to have a land of Israel, the Holy Land. We have text after text in the Old Testament. They're supposed to have this Holy Land and everything's supposed to be fine, agricultural prosperity and all that. How is the Lord ever, ever going to fulfill that? I mean, that just seemed like such a long shot. So in 1900, we think, how is this ever going to come together? Sort of like saying, how are we ever going to get the United States out of the way in the end time so that the whole focus is back on the Middle East and the Roman Empire. How are we ever going to do that? And so then in 1948, they become a nation. And up until then, all those people said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 1948, it happens. Israel becomes a nation. They think, I hate this. (laughs) This is terrible. And so, you know, they have, I I think, a strong motivation to, to wish away the nation of Israel because then it'd be a lot easier to believe replacement theology. Uh, That was a pretty big deal when Israel became a nation again. Uh, The last bullet uh, at the bottom there under real conversion worship. Jesus taught that the Father wishes for spiritually authentic and doctrinally correct people to worship him. Other worshipers are not included in Jesus' statement. That doesn't mean that if you worship wrongly, it's completely disgusting and whatever to God. I'm sure a lot of us are wrong in a lot of things. But you want to be as right as possible. And at some point in this spectrum of wrong worship, uh, probably it would be just as well if you stopped. Uh, because it's just too perverse, too corrupt at that point. And, and we don't know where that is. But we know for sure that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth to continue doing that. We're not sure what he thinks of people who are worshiping with false doctrine. For example, how many Catholic doctrines can you believe until at some point the Lord says, you know, it'd be better if you just didn't show up here. Um, that kind of thing in a spectrum. And we don't know where the cutoff is, but in that whole spectrum, there's at some point it's so corrupt, it'd be better if there probably wasn't any meeting, any kind of you know, organized worship at all. 
Okay, so then reaching the reachable, teaching the teachable, using the usable, and winning the winnable. We always uh, use that expression around here. But it's very interesting. So John 4, 28, the woman then left her water pot, went away into the city, said unto the men, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city, came to him, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he did stay there for two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So the woman at the well came to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. And her report brought many others. And this is the irony. He goes to the Jewish people. And they reject him. He goes to the Samaritans and they're all interested. How strange. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Went up to the wretched Samaritans and they thought it was great and asked him to stay longer. The irony of that. But you see, that idea of teaching the teachable, winning the winnable. They're interested, so you go to them. And Jesus did that. He instructed his followers to do that. One more thing, then he makes an application. What he has done with the Samaritans, he says, now you do it. So in chapter 4, verse 31, in the meantime, the disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know not of. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So what's interesting here, uh, by the way, the little bulleted point, uh, the barley harvest in Israel might typically take place from mid-April to mid-May, and the wheat harvest right behind that, so probably all through the month of June. So in May, if this is where we are, we think this is a reasonable time frame. In May, the wheat had transformed from green plants that spring up from the ground to amber waves of grain, and the harvest-ready wheat Jesus refers to in Samaria, I mean, it was there, ready to harvest, is a picture of what God was doing in hearts at just that time. But what we're finding then is the Lord says, don't, don't say a long time from now we'll get busy harvesting. We'll have to get busy right now. Uh, the whole growing season was about four months. So you plant, you wait four months, and you harvest. And the Lord says, don't be saying now that we have a little while to wait, you know, take your time, sit down. Don't be saying that now. The harvest is right here. And right here in this case was Samaria. Look, all these people want to talk about me, the Christ. And so here we are talking about it. And you guys were out buying food, which you were supposed to do. But now you're going to enter into my labors and we're going to have a harvest here with these Samaritan people. And that's how it oftentimes is. Uh, if you have your eyes open, your antenna up. So that's what we're saying. Don't think that the Lord isn't doing anything right now. There probably is a Samaritan woman in your orbit of acquaintance right now. And if you had eyes to see it, 
uh, if you're looking, if when you stand in line at the grocery store, you look and think, I wonder if anybody here is interested in the gospel. Just talk to somebody. Hi, I see you bought four pounds of hamburger. Expensive these days, isn't it? Just see. Maybe they want to talk to you. Maybe they'll talk to you about Christian things. You have to try. Don't think, well, I know it won't work because this isn't the harvest time. Maybe it is the harvest time. Maybe it's always harvest time for somebody. So you have to try. And if that person is a Samaritan that you wouldn't ordinarily prefer, don't worry about it. Just carry on and reap where the Lord sends you.